So as we dive in here to our last chapter, let me let me pray for us. God, thank you uh, for your word. God, you didn't leave us here uh, alone without guidance. You didn't leave us here without knowing what it looks like to know you, what it looks like to make much of you, to live for you, to make you known. You gave us instructions. And God, we believe that uh, the word of God, every word uh, is inspired. We believe it is inerrant. We believe it is profitable. God, and so as we dive into the last chapter here of of 1 Corinthians, Lord, we believe that it's as important as any other chapter in this book or any book, and I pray you would help uh, help lead us, uh, guide us, convict us, show us uh, Jesus as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the topic um, today is is on a little bit of money, and money is uh, definitely a touchy subject in general, especially in a, in a time of economic downturn and things that we are, we are in right now. But one of the, the biggest defeater arguments, too, of Christianity and people maybe who don't know Christ, maybe you don't know Christ, and a lot of times you hear the, the statement of the reason I don't want anything to do with Christianity is because they just want my money, right? And, uh, and, and this is important to understand that money, um, it, though, though money is not the end of all things, money is a part of of what Christ wants from us. It's part of what God has given to us. Uh, the church, money, life itself, it's, it's really all of it is still about Jesus, as we'll see today. Matter of fact, it's important that you know that Jesus talked a lot about money. Uh, you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll find that uh, Jesus taught more on that subject of money than he did on any other subject. Matter of fact, he taught more on money than he did on heaven and hell combined. That just tells you how significant uh, this subject is. So you may ask the question, why is, why is money, and as we'll see today, giving some of it away, so important to, to God? Well, why is this such an important subject? Well, first of all, it's because money can blind us uh, to the value and worth of Christ, right? It can, it can blind us to our need for God. We just sing about that, um, but it can. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives some instructions on money and talks about it being a very powerful, even uh, can assume a godlike status uh, in our life. Listen to what he says in Matthew six twenty four. He says, "No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money." And so there we find that there is this there's this godlike status that money can have, and it can blind us to the the value worth of of Jesus. He also says in that same chapter that how we use money, what we spend it on, what we give it away to is, a, is an indicator of where our hearts lie. Listen to what Jesus says. He says in Matthew, the same chapter, verses 19 through 21, don't, he says, don't lay it for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay it for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here it is, for where your treasure is, so where your money is, where you put it, what you give it away to, there your heart will be also. So the question is, where, where is your heart this morning? If you're uncertain, and it is sometimes hard to find out, Jeremiah speaks of our hearts being deceitful. Um, you want to find out where your heart is, then go, go look at your bank account. Follow your money. Follow where you spend it, what you give it to. And you'll find that tied to that is going to be where your heart is. It will show you what you value most. Another reason that money is an important subject for us to study is because things like greed, and with the Bible would use a word that maybe we don't use a lot, covetousness, um, is uh, constantly battling for our affections. 
And love for money leads to all kinds of sin. Matter of fact, love, uh, love of money can destroy relationships. It can even destroy us. Paul would write in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice it's not the the it's not money is the root. Maybe sometimes you've heard this verse taken out of context, but it's not money is the root of evil, but it's it's the love of it. Uh, Paul says that behind a lot of evil in the world is a desire to want to be rich, to want to make money. And it's not the amount of zeros that people are driven after necessarily, but what that money stands for, right? Money for people can stand for security, comfort, approval, power, right? Um, love of money leads to selfishness, cheating, perjury, appro- uh, uh, robbery, envy, uh, fighting, hatred, violence, even murder. Greed lies behind perversions of justice, drug pushing, pornography, blackmail, exploitation of the weak, and betrayal of friends. Think of Judas with Jesus, right, for money. Paul says that there are many people in his day who had gone AWOL uh, in following Jesus because of their love for money, and the same is true today. And the interesting thing, though, as we think about this, we probably have in our mind immediately as we start talking about this subject about someone else who needs to hear this, right? There's, there's a neighbor, there's a coworker, that maybe there's a boss, and like, man, he just, he just blows his money. He doesn't, he doesn't have a good relationship towards money. The reality is, though, and we need to take this very seriously, is that each of us, needs to kind of, as it were, draw a circle around ourselves and stop looking around at other people and focus in upon our own hearts before the Lord because we probably all have an unhealthy relationship towards money. Whether you have a lot or a little, you have a, we often have an unhealthy relationship with it. We don't think we have a problem with it. Most of us don't think we're greedy. When's the last time you confessed to God that you were greedy? It's the last time you told anybody, right? That uh, someone around you that you love and respect and you confess to them, hey, I'm, I've, I've been greedy this week. Like, that's not something we normally speak of. Um, and yet, listen to this, Luke 12, 15, Jesus would say this. He said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his uh, possessions. Jesus says, beware of greed. Why? Because it's, you don't know you're doing it. Uh, it's something that is very can be very tempting and something we don't even see. He doesn't say that kind of thing about adultery, for example. He doesn't say, be careful you know, that you may be committed adultery. You know when you've committed adultery. That's not something you're shocked about. But greed is something you can do and not even know uh, that, you're, uh, that you're doing that. It's, it's even, um, even though it's clear that our world is filled with greed and materialism, None of us thinks that we're actually greedy, right? We're all kind of in denial. And that's why this subject uh, is so important. So we need our eyes opened, right? We, we need to aggressively attack uh, this God of money uh, that lures us away from Jesus. And the solution, one of the primary solutions, is to learn to give some of it away. Um, yeah, we, we need to use money to take care of our families. We need to use money to pay our bills. We need to be wise and, and save money. That's a good idea to do as well. Even 1 Timothy 6 will speak of even enjoying the money and the resources that God has given to us. All that is good. But we also need to, to have the practice of giving. There's no greater weapon against greed and covetousness and materialism than giving. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then giving financially is not an option. Jesus loves us too much 
to, to let us keep everything and hoard everything to ourselves and not give some of it away. And we'll talk about that. So here we are, final chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul's going to instruct us on this. And he's going to show us uh, of what we are to be giving to and for what purposes. And it's perfectly placed in our chapter because it just follows chapter 15 where Paul has spent a lot of time, we spent the last couple of weeks, looking at the future resurrection. There is coming a day where we'll have resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth with the resurrected Christ. In light of that, in light of that we'll have everything we've ever wanted, this is why he starts talking about collecting money, right? And giving it away. Because we as Christians, because of our belief in the future and that guaranteed hope, we can now part with some of these things and not hold on to all of them, right? We have a, a future. We don't need to be consumed by money. We don't need to spend everything that God has given to us on ourselves. We can and should give. And so Paul's going to tell us three areas. There's three areas that we are to give to. We are to give to the church, we're to give to the marginalized, and give to the mission. All right, let's look at the first one. Give to the church. Now, Paul begins, verse 1, talks about here, a collection is to be taken for the saints. As I directed the churches in Galatia, uh, so also uh, to you I direct this. So on the first day of the week, each one is to put something and store it up, verse 2. So Paul speaks of a, a monetary collection that is to be conducted at each local church. Notice in verse 2, they are to, he says to store it up, and that's an important word, and let's stop there for a moment. The term refers to a, a kind of storehouse uh, where valuables were stored. In that culture, 2,000 years ago, in the Greek world as well as the Jewish world, um, they would uh, hold uh, kind of uh, storehouses were associated with uh, religious uh, buildings, temples. Uh, they even served as banks where citizens kept their money and valuables and even places where citizens could get loans. So those, those religious temples and uh, facilities and places served as that kind of storehouse or bank uh, for people. And so people would give to it and, and that's where it would be. So Paul is telling the Corinthian church and all local churches to serve as almost like collection centers for its members' money as they give it. So Paul is not referring to, um, it's important to note, he's not referring to storing up money privately at your house or at your local bank today uh, because he says that no collections, very specifically, no collections are to be made when he shows up. Uh, if the money was stored at home or stored at some bank, and the first thing to be done when Paul arrived would have been to, hey, go get the money, collect it, bring it to the spot so I can, you know, distribute it as needed. Paul's emphasis here, point being, is it falls upon um, uh, the value of advanced planning and preparation and habit rather than kind of last minute scrambling to meet some need. There's a methodic nature uh, to their giving here is what, what he's getting to. So why collect the money? and have the church kind of hold it like a storehouse. Well, why is this instruction here in the Bible? Uh, it's because it, it, it allowed ministry and mission to take place. And it was to be distributed as by the leadership of the church, by the pastors that were given to the church as needs arise and as things were to be done. We see this early on, the practice of the early church with the apostles. Back in Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 34, it says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many were, as were owners of lands or, or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So there it was given to the leadership. The leadership then distributed as there was need. Thus Joseph, it says here, it was also called by the apostles Barnabas, uh, a Levite. Uh, he says, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it 
at the apostles' feet. All right, so we, we get kind of the mechanism, the structure of even how we do things today at Parkside is very similar to what we learn from these passages like in 1 Corinthians and in Acts. But if you look back at, at 16 of, uh, of 1 Corinthians, verse 2, notice that it says, each of you is to put something aside. That's, again, important. Each member is to give something uh, to the local church. Paul even encourages uh, the practice every time the church gathers. So he says every Sunday, every time they gather together. And the point is not to give a, a legalistic requirement of the amount or even the frequency necessarily. Uh, this is why he says to give as you prosper, right? So it's different with each person. The amount may change even from that person based on income. This was especially true back then, right? They were more of an agrarian culture and their income was very seasonal, right? Based on what they earned or what they made during different seasons. And so Paul says, collect every Sunday and give as you, as you, were, or as you were able. But Paul's instructing churches to take an offering, though, every single Sunday. You say, why is that? Why are we, why don't we do it every Sunday? I mean, we get it here, but why do that? It was, again, to remind us that we need a healthy relationship towards money and to build kind of healthy habits of consistent, faithful giving. Again, in our day and age, because most income in our day and age is a lot more steady than it was 2,000 years ago, uh, we can be even more consistent than even they would have been back in, uh, in, in Corinth. So this means that our giving should not be sporadic. Our giving should not be also not based on emotional appeals, right, uh, by a pastor or somebody pleading for, for, uh, for giving. Uh, it shouldn't be based on necessarily bonus income or Trump money, as we've, some of us have received. Uh, we need to build a habit of giving weekly or, or monthly or somewhere in between, um, because if it isn't a habit, it will become whimsical. And other, other, other things in the world will take priority. Your money usually is not just sitting aside there, oh, I, I guess I should give some. I have all this extra left over, right? That, that's why in the Old Testament, uh, the principle for them, the rule for them was to give the, the first fruits or the, the first of the flock to the Lord because that's the, kind of how it works. If you, don't, if you wait to what you have left over, there's usually anything left over. Other things will crowd that out. Uh, but it's good to build a habit of giving. Uh, my uh, twins have been... Uh, Driving, I've got uh, well, I got three of them working at McDonald's now. So if you ever go to the the McDonald's here in Brownsburg, uh, you can say hi to my my three kids, three of my four kids. Calvin will be there soon enough, I'm sure. But the, my twins have been driving, get their learner's permit, uh, and they've actually will get their license pretty soon, as soon as the BMV kind of opens up and allows them to take their final test. So watch out, world, when that happens. But um, but I was I was driving with my son the other day, and uh, he was getting off of an exit, and he didn't use his signal to get off and. And I said, hey, Kevin, you need, to, you need to use your signal. Like whenever you merge a lane, whenever you get off an exit, whenever you make a turn, right, uh, use your signal. He's like, well, there was no eye behind me, so I didn't see I didn't need to do a signal. I was like, no, you need to build a habit of constantly using it so that so when time comes that you actually build the habit, you're always doing it. So you're not going to get rear-ended by somebody or hit by somebody because you're in the habit of constantly of, uh, using your signal. And that's the same kind of idea for us. We should always get in the habit of giving, whether we see an apparent need uh, that's right before us or not, we should get in the habit of frequently just giving consistently. So we build that habit, as Paul says here. So there's a collection that uh, when there is a need, as we'll talk about in a moment here in Jerusalem, we're able to meet that need because we've been making a collection during that time. And so we need to be faithful and consistent, build a habit of giving. Um, and if we don't do so, the problem also we lose out on is we lose out on the joy of doing it all. Now, that may be not something that you're associating giving with, 
Uh, but the Bible associates giving as a follower of Christ with joy. Right? There's actually joy that comes along with that. Listen to how Paul would follow up on this kind of um, this chapter, chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. In a second letter he wrote, uh, if you flip over probably one page in your Bible, you'll see 2 Corinthians, it's there. It's another letter he wrote to the Corinthians. And in that chapter 8 and chapter 9 of that book, he actually follows up with this whole collecting of money idea. And he, he says this in chapter 9 of that letter, verse 7, each one must give. So here we have that same similar uh, idea. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so Paul again says, uh, as you have made up your mind. The idea again is that idea of predetermination and purpose. It implies that giving is again planned and uh, systematic, not casual and careless. We should have a planned part right, of our budgets. Uh, just like we do mortgages or groceries or car payments, we should have a planned um, part of giving. And though Paul doesn't give a percentage or an amount, he does tell us how not to give. He says, don't do it here. He says, out of obligation or manipulation. The idea is the idea of remorse or regret or reluctance. Even the word is, has the idea of mourning um, or par of parting with what we've been given. God doesn't want us to whine when we give our stuff away. Tom Hanks once said, there's no crying in baseball. No, there's no crying in giving, okay? We, we are to give and give joyfully, right? That's the whole idea. Matter of fact, the word here for cheerful is the word, a Greek word, is hilarious. Probably guess where that comes from? We get our English word hilarious. I mean, the idea is that people are laughing as they give. That's crazy, isn't it? I'm reminded of um, uh, Charles Dickens. Uh, uh, we talked about Scrooge after his conversion. Uh, from being a miser, right? He kind of, uh, he, he gave this. It says he, he went around just giving money away everywhere. And it says the chuckle which, with which he said this and the chuckle with, with, with which he paid for the turkey and the chuckle with which he paid for the cab and the chuckle with which he recompensed the boy were only to be exceeded by the chuckle with which he sat down breathless in his chair again and chuckled till he cried. Right? He, was, he was so happy in learning to give, right? And so as a Christian, we we are to give joyfully. We don't give reluctantly. I mean, think about it. A guilt-manipulated gift is really almost like thinking we pay a God tax. God doesn't tax us, okay? He could if he wanted to, but doesn't tax us. We are to give joyfully uh, to him. And so there's freedom, there's life, there's satisfaction in responding to God's grace and being obedient to God uh, following his word. And Paul even says here, I think this is, this pause here on this, this verse again, he, God loves a cheerful giver. That's an interesting phrase. The things in the Bible that God, it says God loves explicitly, like God loves the following, are these, the poor, justice, his son, and his children that have been adopted through Christ. Those are things explicitly God says, I love these things. And then here he says, I also love a cheerful giver. I love those who give joyfully. God gets fired up, as it were, when he sees justice served, uh, to the marginalized when he sees his own son and when he sees his, his, uh, his children give uh, sacrificially. Again, it's not, I, I really love to see my people sing or I really love to see my people attend church. I really love to see my people read the Bible. I really love to see my people share the gospel. Those are all things God loves for sure. But explicitly here it says God loves cheerful giving. He loves to see that. He loves it. Some of you may have hearts may have grown cold to the Lord, may feel distant from Christ. And part of that may be, if you go look, maybe there may be a connection to your money, maybe something you want to look into, something you want to sit before and bring before the Lord. 
there may be a, a disconnect there that your heart has grown cold because you've ceased to give. You've, you've kind of got the white knuckle grip onto your stuff and you're refusing to kind of let it go. And, and it's understandable in some ways, like with this time of uncertainty that we kind of just want to keep it all close. But these are the times when God tests our faith and these are times that we go, okay, God, this is all yours. Everything you're giving to me is yours and I'm going to continue to follow you and I'm going to continue to give. Maybe you're not able to give the same amount. Maybe you've, you've lost some income, all those things. All that may change, but I'm still going to continue to give. I'm going to continue to build that habit in my life. Let's go back again uh, to what I said earlier, and, and it's this, that God doesn't command um, you to give. He doesn't command you to give because somehow he's mean or selfish, and it surely isn't because he needs your money, okay? God doesn't need any money, all right? He, he doesn't need any of that. He yeah, it's really not actually about God at all. The reason God commands us of this is really for our own sake, for our soul's sake. Uh, when God commands us of things, it's, it's for our good. Because why? Because God knows us better than we know ourselves. If God didn't command us to give, we probably wouldn't give anything. Right? We just keep it all to ourselves. And yet he loves us too much to, go, to let us go that way. So he commands us to give some of it away for our own sake. Listen to Deuteronomy 6.24. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, all these rules, to fear the Lord our God for our what? Our good. Always. It sounds like a parent to a child, right? A child's like, I don't understand why you want me to do this. It's like, you don't understand now. You understand when you're older, but this is for your good, right? Um, listen, Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. What does the Lord your God require of you but to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good, for your good. So we're to give consistently, faithfully, to our local churches. Secondly, we are to give to the marginalized. Uh, back in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, verse 3, he says, When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Uh, if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So here we find um, that while we are to consistently be giving to the local church, we're also to be giving to those in need. In this text, giving to the local church and giving to those in need were one and the same. And that'd be similar to, to like what we do here at Parkside. And you give in general offering that is distributed um, not only to the church in general, but also to those in need, right? And so we find here again that, um, that they're to take some of that and distribute it. We do that here with uh, like benevolence. Part of your money goes to benevolence. Part of it goes to like the storehouse, right? So you are serving both those purposes by giving. But I still think it's a good idea that while you should set aside budget, I encourage budgeting, set aside a certain amount of your money to be able to go towards a local church, uh, your local church, but also to those who are in need, those who are, well, I use the word marginalized, those who are pushed to the margins of society. Um, we budget in our household. Um, I'd encourage you to do, to do the same, uh, to at least find out where your money's going. Good to budget just to see where your money's going. You may be surprised where it's going. Um, we set aside a mountain or monthly budget to give to Parkside, but we also set aside a, a separate line item, a separate amount. If you like those Excel spreadsheets like I do, we have a separate amount that, uh, that goes towards giving in general, giving to other needs outside of that. Or we want to have a place in our budget to give to those in need, to bless others as needs arise. That's not part of our regular giving uh, to Parkside. And this is important because there are needs, and here's why that's important. There are needs that God will put in front of you individually that either A, only you can meet because you know the personal need, but also there may be opportunities for the gospel there where you're able to meet a need and in a relationship with someone who doesn't know Christ that you can do so, right? You can sacrifice and give to that. So you want to create that room to be able to do so. 
And there again, there are needs that each of our members can meet that maybe only they can meet. Now, what is giving? What is going on here in the giving to Jerusalem? Why does Paul want to collect money from Corinth, bring it over to Jerusalem? What, what is going on with them? And, and here's the situation. Let's do a little bit of history so you understand the setting of what's happening here. Uh, the church in Jerusalem, which was the very first church, by the way, uh, to start, um, and they were extremely poor uh, and they were in great need. There was multiple reasons for this. The first reason was because the, the church largely consisted of, of pilgrims um, who, uh, who, went, who weren't necessarily from Jerusalem originally. Um, we find out in the book of Acts that the first kind of converts outside of that first 120 or so uh, that were in the upper room there in Acts 1, uh, the first converts were from Pentecost, right, in chapter 2. And those were people from all different nations who had come to, to kind of celebrate that week um, in Jerusalem. And since there were no churches, uh, there were no Christians really anywhere else in the world at that point, uh, the converted pilgrims remained in Jerusalem, right? They remained there for a time. They would later spread out. They would later start churches. Paul would do a lot of that. You can read that in the book of Acts in those different places. But they remained in Jerusalem because that was the only place to, at that time to get the apostles' teaching. It was the only place to have fellowship with fellow believers. And so the church really grew pretty significantly in Jerusalem, uh, as we find thousands that come to Christ in that time. So there was a lot of, a lot of people in that. Uh, jobs wouldn't be easy to come by. That's why we just read in chapter 2 of Acts that fellow Christians would sell their properties, uh, their lands, to kind of help give money to the church to help those who didn't have work at that time. Second reason why uh, he's giving to Jerusalem is because uh, persecution was significant. Uh, new converts, when they came to Christ in Jerusalem, uh, many of them lost their jobs. Many of them lost their businesses. Uh, they were ostracized from family and friends, cut off from maybe income. A lot of times you were in the family business, right? So it all was lumped together. You were ostracized because of your faith in Christ. So they, they, they cut you out of the family. That means they cut you out of your job, right? Everything you, you had was gone. And so, um, and so much of this was a result of, ironically enough, the guy who was writing this letter used to be named Saul. When he came to Christ, his name got changed to Paul. He was a source of a lot of this. Every time he would come to Jerusalem, he would see widows that he had made widows, right? He'd see orphans, he'd made orphans. And when he came to Christ in Acts 9, um, and the, the persecution didn't stop, actually. Someone else picked up the flag, as it were, and continued to bring the persecution to the church and the Christians that were in Jerusalem. The last reason this was important to give to them was because the economic climate of the day was pretty brutal. They were still under Roman rule, and the Romans would extract every ounce they could get, every penny they could get from their people through taxation. Um, they, uh, in addition, there was a famine in the land, so a lot of the income that maybe would have come by, by, their, um, by their properties were, were affected there by their crops. And so the uh, Jerusalem church was overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed with needs. They were undersupplied with money and resources. And Paul knew this, and so he would go to churches and collect money to give back to, uh, to the church in Jerusalem to help those fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul wants the, the Corinthian Christians, who were fairly wealthy, a fairly wealthy city, Corinth was, ancient Corinth, to help the Jerusalem Christians who were experiencing many different hardships and needed, needed the money. Now, there's more going on here than economics, though. Uh, Paul wants the church in Corinth to give to the church in Jerusalem because this was a perfect way to demonstrate the unity of the church with a capital C, right? So each Christian is to be part of a local church, but each Christian is also automatically, when you come to Christ, part of the universal 
church. And Paul is saying, we're, we're gonna, this is a great way to, to show the unity of the church, of all brothers and sisters in Christ, that they're meeting needs to one another, even though they're not part of the same particular body of Christ, particular, sorry, particular local church. And so this is a way to, to further advance the gospel, right? It was a way of, um, of furthering the gospel in a, really in an ethically divided world at the time. You say, what was going on? Well, think about this. Most of the Christians in Corinth were Gentiles. It's a Gentile territory, um, meaning non-Jewish. And most of the people in Jerusalem were what? They were Jews. You say, what's the big deal? Jews and Gentiles, why was it? They didn't like each other in general, right? I mean, this is kind of how it worked at that time. The Jews had a temple. They had a, an outside uh, of their temple called the, the Temple of the Gentiles uh, that, that were, they were allowed to go into. But then there was a wall, six-foot wall, uh, built that kept the Gentiles from coming into the, the area for the Jews. They had their own special place they could go to, but Gentiles couldn't. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a sign that's been excavated through uh, archaeology found that was hung on the wall by the Jewish people to tell the, the Gentiles the following. The sign said, no foreigner is to enter within the gate around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows. Right? That's, that's pretty brutal. Right? That's not, you'll be prosecuted for trespassing. That is, you'll be shot uh, for, for trespassing. And so the Jews um, wouldn't eat with Gentiles. They wouldn't even enter a Gentile home. We can see that in the Gospels. Because remember, to eat with someone is to welcome them into your life, to befriend them. Uh, if they entered Gentile territory, when they got back into their Jewish territory, they would shake the dust off their feet so as not to defile the Holy Land uh, in that way. And so this led to hatred of both groups. They didn't like each other. Gentiles looked at the Jews, thought they were self-righteous, um, saw they were immature, greedy, arrogant. Um, and so that was they just didn't associate with each other. So here we have what Paul is doing. This is pretty radical in this time. He has Gentile Christians giving to Jewish Christians to help them out. And that would have turned heads in both cultures. The Gentiles in Corinth would wonder why, why in the world are, are you Christians giving to an enemy, the Jews? And the Jews, uh, the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem would look at the Christian Jews and be like, well, why are you receiving money from an enemy, right? So, I mean, this would have been a radical thing to happen. And the point for us in all of this, kind of the practical application for us moving forward, is, is that these were, the people in Jerusalem were, they were marginalized. They were, they had lost income. They were, they were persecuted, right? They were going through hardship. They were pushed to the margins of society in Jerusalem. They weren't part of the mainstream of culture. And so our need here is to give to those who are like that in our own culture, those who are different than us. Why? To show that the gospel uh, is not, the church, the gospel is not a, it's not a country club, right? We, we don't give just to our own, right, uh, within our own walls. It's not about one particular socioeconomic group. It's not about one particular culture. And it's not about one particular race, right? That's what we're showing by giving to those different. The gospel is transcultural. And where and who we give our money to serve to either assure unbelievers that we're just about our own tribe, just a glorified country club, or turn heads because the church isn't about just helping out our own but where we help those who are different than us, right? Both economically, socially, and racially. And that's what's going on in this text. And Paul would call this back in his second letter. He'd write to them. He called this fairness. Listen to how he put it. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 13. He said, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness okay so he brought that up he used that word twice 
And what Paul is saying there is he's not looking necessarily to make the, the rich poor, the poor rich. He's not trying to look like equal um, economic playing ground, as it were. He is wanting those who have more than they need to give to those who have less than they need. Right? And all of this is from God and in its fairness. It's fairness in sharing what God has given to us. What we possess is to be shared. Okay? Let me give you another way the Bible puts this. If you go back and read the poetry sections of the Old Testament, things like Psalms and Proverbs, you'll find some language that pops up a lot. I'm going to give you a word for this. A lot of times you'll see the word wicked and righteous. Right? A lot of Proverbs talk about that. A lot of the Psalms talk about the, the wicked and the righteous. And it almost always has to do with economics. Um, when you see the word righteous and wicked in the Psalms and Proverbs, over, over 400 references to those, by the way, it's almost exclusively in economic terms. There's a, a, a writer, a commentary writer named Bruce Walkey, in his uh, commentary on Proverbs, uh, I remember reading this and it was like, it really changed the way I even understood this whole idea of fairness and justice. Um, and he noted how the righteous person, whenever you see the righteous person in the, in the Old Testament, that is a person who disadvantages themselves for the advantage of others. And the wicked person, it says, is actually the person who disadvantages others, right, for their own advantage. It almost always has to do with economics. And so the righteous person is the person who says, basically, much of what I have belongs to others. It's not mine. And the wicked person says, no, it's all mine. I worked hard for it. I earned it. It's my money, right? That, that's how the, the wicked are described. Listen to some passages here. Proverbs 11 7 through 8. When the wicked dies, his hope will perish. The expectation of wealth perishes too. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. Proverbs 12, 26. One who is righteous, okay, one who disadvantages themselves for the good of others, is a guide to his neighbor. But the way of the wicked, okay, those who take advantage of others, leads them astray. Proverbs 15, 6. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure. But trouble befalls the income of the wicked. Now you see those economic uh, put together. And lastly, uh, Proverbs 29, 7. This is, this is a, a real strong one here. It says, a righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. That's a pretty shocking statement. So righteous men and women see their money as belonging in some ways to the entire human community. Not just their church, not just the, the Christians, to the entire human community. That's why he even talks about here the rights of the poor. And as they help others, they are blessed. Meanwhile, the unrighteous sees their money as strictly theirs and no one else's. They may help out those in their own tribe. They may help out those who are close to them, but they're not going to help out anybody else because this is all about theirs. Um, and so we, we find here that God steps into our kitchens in some ways and just really turns it upside down for us. Listen to Proverbs 22, verse 2. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. He has made them who they are. Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine, God says, and the gold is mine. And then Deuteronomy 8.18, you should remember, Lord your God, it is he who gives you power to get wealth. So if you sit there and you go like, I made my own income, made my own money, I worked hard for it, it's mine. God even comes to that and says, you know what, all that energy and all the opportunity, that came from me too, right? So everything belongs to him. And so God gave humanity authority over the world's resources, but not ownership. We have received what we have as kind of like a, almost a fund, fund manager um, receives other people's money to invest. And the crazy thing is that God, who owns it all, actually entrusts us with some of his stuff to use for his glory. 
And the even crazier part is we actually get to enjoy the benefits of sharing those resources that God has given to us. So this power of this God of money blinds us not only to the value and vision of Jesus, my friends, but it can easily blind us to the value and vision of people who are made in his image. That's why this is important. That's why it's good to give, not just to the local church, but to give to those in need, to give to the marginalized, to give those who are not part of your tribe, right? And so since sin entered the world, we instead of using now, instead of using money and possessions to love people, which is what God intends, we use people to love money and possessions. Instead of being image bearers of God, they become tools to be taken advantage of. If you're a follower of Christ, that gets turned over. Your whole perspective on money and people and value changes. This is why Jonathan Edwards, um, theologian back in the 17th century here, uh, 18th century in America, said the surest test of an authentic work of the Spirit is an eagerness to reclaim the hidden beauty of those who remain unloved. The surest, the authentic work of the Spirit. That's, That's the surest test. You want to know the Spirit of God's at work in you? Do you have eyes to see people in need? Do you part with some of your goods and resources to help those in need despite their creed, belief, or system, or even despite how they may or may not have gotten themselves in the situation that they're in, right? Our perspective changes on our resources when we come to Christ. Lastly, we need to give to the mission. The rest of this passage in 1 Corinthians is kind of Paul's uh, travel itinerary, right? It's kind of some, some, some things about what he's doing, where he's going, and uh, he says here some interesting things. He talks about and tells them he, he wants to pass through Macedonia before he gets to Corinth. Now, uh, if you've looked at a map, that's not a straight route. He's in Ephesus. He's trying to get to Corinth. And Macedonia is like up here. And so he's going to go out of his way to go back to here. Why did he do that? Because he wants to get the gospel out to these places. That was always Paul's burning passion. You can read about that in the book of Acts. And he even says here that he's going to stay in Ephesus a little longer because the fields are white for harvest. There's a door of opportunity for him, for the gospel. Now notice uh, there's a word repeated here. Look at verse 6. Paul wants the Corinthians to help him. And then down in verse 11, he also wants them to help Timothy. Right? The word help is the word almost exclusively used for assisting someone in a journey with uh, resources, food, money, things like that, to get them along in their journey to get to their destination. And so Paul is asking the Corinthians to help him and Timothy to get the gospel out, provide the resources, the ability to be able to go across the Roman world. So while the consistent faithful giving to the local church served to help the marginalized and the mission, we're to still look to set aside money to individually help the mission. Right? You can read in virtually every one of Paul's conclusions of his letters and every letter he wrote, he thanks people. And he almost always thanks people because of how they helped him how they helped him get the gospel out, whatever they could do, whether it was money, resources, whether it was a place to stay, whether it was, you know, however they could do it to help get the gospel out, that's what he thinks them for. You say, why is it important for you as a Christian to support financially those who are getting the gospel out? And I think there's one of the main ideas is right here in verse 9. Paul talks about that there's, there are many adversaries, right? Um, there's an open door for the gospel. It's great it's going to be hard for me, right? And Paul could testify to that. You can read the book of Acts and you can see him all the time suffering, all the time struggling, right? It's, uh, he already told us in chapter 15 of, of this letter that in Ephesus where he's at, it was like he got torn apart by lions, right? I mean, they were vicious uh, in how they attacked him. They tried to rip him to shreds. My friends, ministry and mission is hard. It's hard getting the gospel out, um, 
to think about this just this this weekend over the last 25 years uh, in ministry myself, I could tell you that um, unfortunately, um, more than I have fingers on my on my hands here, the amount of pastors and, and, and ministry people that I know that have committed suicide. Uh, just this weekend, another one uh, that I was part with uh, about a decade ago in Acts 29 uh, committed suicide. It, it's hard. Ministry is hard. Mission is hard. Um, and if you don't think so, you just jump in it for a little bit and you'll find out. And that's what Paul is saying. So he's asking for help. He's saying, please help us get the gospel out. Help us do whatever we can to get it going and get it out. Missionaries, pastors, ministry workers, to get the gospel out. Your financial support is a huge help for them. Right? The fact that Corinth could help him and Timothy, that meant one less anxiety, one less trial, one less barrier to get the gospel out. It meant they could travel without the burden of having to, to work to pay for it themselves. The whole point of financially supporting them, of financially supporting missionaries or pastors or ministry workers, is so that they're freed up right, to get the gospel out. That's the point. For many of you, uh, God has provided you with the jobs uh, that give you income to, again, help provide for your family, for saving for the future, for enjoying life, all those things. But also so that you can give to the church and give to the marginalized, you can give to the mission. Are you giving to these, right? If you're a follower of Christ and you're not giving to anything, uh, let me encourage you to start by just, just giving something consistently to your local church. Uh, they should serve to help you with the other two, right? Your giving should, in a way, help the marginalized and help the mission move forward in that way. But continue to work on your budget, I would encourage you. Continue to work on it in a way that you can start to find some space to be able to give to others that are in need and to get the gospel out. Um, that would be a good second step. I mean, for, for us practically here at church, maybe you're giving to the church and that's all you're giving to and that's, that's great, that's good, be consistent. Maybe a second step is going like, all right, I'm going to go help get some supplies for the storehouse. Right? I'm going to go spend my own money. I'm not taking out of my regular offering. I'm going to go spend that money extra to start giving that way. Right? That's a good second step. Another step in that is like, I want to help get the gospel out. Maybe you want to adopt a, a missionary or, or even adopt a, an inner city pastor. I can't tell you by uh, formerly working in the inner city how hard that is and how, how money is hard to come by, especially working with more marginalized or poor communities that there are many, even in Indianapolis here, that you could personally be helping financially uh, so that they can get the gospel out, right? If you don't know how to get started with that, like you could talk to Pastor Eddie, you could talk to anybody on the missions committee that could help you uh, start to find ways that you can help serve and help give to help get the gospel out. Because maybe God hasn't called you as a full-time work towards that, but you can help someone else who can, right? Who, who has been called in that way. So we have to ask the question, why, why do all this? There are so many places where you can give your money to. And this is not like exclusively these three are the only things that Christians should give to. There's many other places and things you can give to. But, but why, I mean, these three, why give sacrificially to the church, the marginalized, the mission? Why do that? And that's where the gospel comes into play. And anyway, every Sunday, it's like playing Where's Waldo, right? We're, we're looking at the Bible going, where's Jesus? Okay, that's the whole point of the text. We talk about money, we're going to talk about Jesus, right? We talk about the church, we're going to talk about Jesus. And so, and it really comes down to that, right? Um, as I said at the beginning, that's what money and ultimately is supposed to be about. And listen to how, in the, in the second letter to the Corinthians, how Paul put it. Here's how he connected the gospel to giving. Chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, right, you might become rich. You say, how, how was Jesus rich? Well, Jesus was 
God Almighty. He was the creator God. He owned, he owned everything, right? And he, he had all the glory, he had all the worth and all the value. And, and so he, he, was the, he was the richest, as it were. And not only that, but everything, not only did he own everything, but everything existed, exists for him. Romans eleven thirty six says, From him, through him, to him are all things. Right? To him be glory forever. Amen. So he, he had everything, and everything was there created for him. And yet it says here that Jesus became poor. How did he become poor? He willingly submitted himself. My friends, God, our creator, became a human being just like us. He rubbed shoulders with us. He submitted himself to the hearts of people who did not accept him, but rather rejected him. And as the story goes in the Gospels, they beat him, they crucified him, and left him for dead. He became poor the moment that he was born. Think about this. He would suffer hunger, thirst, right? He would suffer, he would grow tired, weary. He would die. He would be tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And there were no timeouts. There were no ceasefires, right? There was no times of peace or rest. His entire life was, on, was an onslaught of attack right, against Satan and against uh, sin to destroy him until he breathed his last. His life was one of sorrow and pain and rejection, as Isaiah 53 would say. He was born in a, a borrowed stable. When he found, found crowds that were hungry, he, he borrowed a little boy's lunch to feed them. When he wanted to confound his critics, he, he borrowed a coin, right, to, to say, render to Caesar things that are Caesar's. When he wanted to teach the multitudes, he, he borrowed Peter's boat, right, he pushed out onto the water so he, could, so he could teach everyone. He spent most of his nights in either borrowed homes or he was out in borrowed lands, right, and had a rock as a pillow. Uh, his last week of his life, he rode into town on a borrowed donkey. He had his last meal in a borrowed room. He was crucified on a borrowed cross, and he was buried in someone else's tomb. Never owned anything. I mean, he was rich, became poor, right? He gave up everything for us. How do we become rich by his poverty? We believe and submit ourselves to the one who lived the life that we could not live and died the death we should have died to save us, right? And when he resurrected, he poured out all of his riches on us, riches of his grace, the riches of his forgiveness, the riches of his relationship with God, the riches of his heaven, right? We get an absolute endless amount of grace that can never be used up, fully absorbed, or maxed out. And Paul's point, and the point he is making, is that to, give, to keep your riches to yourself, to keep your resources to yourself, and not become poor in some way by giving some of it away to the church, to marginalize the mission, is to live antithetical to the very gospel you, came, you, you claim to believe. To live antithetical to the very Savior you claim to follow. He was, he was rich, became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich, and he calls us to be the same, to give reflexively to the gospel that we've received. Right? We receive grace, let's give grace. We receive riches, let's give riches. Right? We receive resources, let's give resources. We receive forgiveness, let's give forgiveness. Right? This is all part of why we always go back to Jesus and the gospel is because that's the power and the motivation to do and to act out on the obedience of following Christ together. Let me encourage you to reorient your life around the generosity of Jesus in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for this passage. I know at first uh, we read this uh, last chapter and it almost seems like a, a sidebar or maybe a footnote in some ways. But God, it's an, a critical part of not just the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a critical part of the Bible. Money is so important for us. Uh, it does indicate a lot of where our hearts are. And so it, it, I pray, God, you would help us. Open up our eyes to maybe blindness we may have. Open up our eyes to see the value and worth of Christ, 
who was rich and became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Help us to see that, be overwhelmed with that, reorient our life around that, give as a response to the grace we received in you. God, everything we have, every penny, every resource is from you. Help us to know that, believe that, and look around and find ways that we can do justice and show mercy and walk humbly with our God as a response. In Jesus' name, amen.